0: Welcome to The Meaningful Life. My witness this week is Richard Lang, who's been a psychotherapist for 30 years. He's also led meditation retreats and taught Tai Chi and dance. But his main work is helping people understand their true identity, or as he puts it in the title of the book we're going to be discussing, seeing who you really are. When it comes to leading a meaningful life, one of the most interesting questions to ask is, who am I? Not just the CV sort of way that I've introduced Richard, but deep down, what is the essential you, the part that was there at 20, 30 and still there today? Now, what makes Richard really interesting is that he's on a spiritual path, a way of seeing the world that does not require you to believe anything which is probably just as well because we're going to juggle with some extraordinary ideas. All I ask is to keep an open mind and try out the experiments we'll be discussing today. Well, welcome, Richard. I think the best way to start on this journey, and I think it really is a journey, is your meeting when you were just 20 with a man who changed your life, whose name was Douglas Harding, the man with no head, which is what you called him in the biography of him that you wrote. Obviously, he didn't literally have no head. We'll explain all about that. But tell me about Douglas, his background, and what you mean by the man with no head.
2: Well, thank you, Andrew, and a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, yes, the question, who am I, is such a good question. Well, I met uh, Douglas Harding actually when I was 17, so 50 years ago, in fact. So you can do your calculations there. (laughs) Easy
0: math,
2: that one. That one, yes. And I had been interested as a boy in Christianity quite seriously. But um, by the time I was in my mid-teens, I was beginning to look away from that because it didn't answer the questions I was asking really, which when I look back on it were questions, who am I and what is the meaning of life really?
0: But those are the two most important questions, really, aren't they?
2: I think they are for me. I don't think they are for everyone. (laughs) Sometimes I think the headless way, which is what I call this approach, is the answer to a question that someone is not asking. (laughs) So, in other words, I think you have to be asking the question, who am I? What is the meaning of life? For the answer to ring true. But I met Douglas when I was in my um, teens. It was the late 60s and I started exploring other religions. They were coming into the West in those days, particularly uh, Hinduism and Buddhism. And when I was 17, I went on a course at the London Buddhist Society Summer School, with my brother, in fact, just to find out more. And as it happened, Douglas Harding was there, and he did a workshop. Up until the moment when I met him at this conference, I was getting more and more confused, because you'd go into one lecture about Zen and another about Tibetan Buddhism and another about something else, And I was a shy youngster and I I was confused. And someone said, oh, just go along to the workshop this afternoon with Douglas. I went along. He didn't ask me to believe anything or study anything. He just got me to do, along with everyone else, some experiments which directed my attention back to what I was from my own point of view, which is uh, the whole thing, really.
0: Tell us about Douglas, because in the 60s, having an interest in alternative religions was really quite out there, wasn't it?
2: Hmm. Well, Douglas, when I met him, he was 61. He was born in 1909 in Lowestoft in the east of England, and he grew up in the exclusive Plymouth Brethren, which is a very strict Christian sect who think they're the only ones who've got the right way, you know. When he was 21, he left. He couldn't accept that they were right just because they said they were right. He'd already got to university studying architecture now in London, and he started exploring things for himself. So this is the 1930s, and he didn't want to take on board yet another system or belief. He wanted to find out for himself what he was, what the meaning of his life was, and who he was. And he really took up the idea of relativity, that what you are physically, depends on the range of the observer. So if you were to look at me and I said, well, Andrew, what am I? You'd say, well, you're a person. I'd say, well, come up to me and see what I am at a closer range. Oh, you're just ahead. Oh, even closer with the right instruments, you're a patch of skin, you're some cells, you're molecules gosh, you've almost disappeared. In other words, each of us, anything you look at, is like an onion in that it's got layers. And what it is changes with the range of the
0: observer. And if you go the opposite direction, what happens?
2: Well, then the observer moves away and will see your family and your town and your country, the planet, the star and the galaxy. And of course, you need all of these layers. I need them all. I need my cells and molecules, but I need my atmosphere and my planet to talk to you you now. And we identify with all these layers. I identify with my body, my family, my country, and my planet, hopefully, or just an aching tooth. We expand and contract all the time. And Douglas took this seriously. So that's both a physical thing and a kind of identification with that. He then got a job in India and with his wife, went to India. They had a couple of children there. But anyway, the war broke out and he had already written a couple of books on this. And with the war breaking out, it got even more important for him to find out, as he used to say, find out who I am before I die. What's the use of spending your whole life accepting what everyone says you are and operating from that without having a look for yourself? And he would say that only you are in a position to see what you are at center, because the question is, if you like an onion with layers, what's at the center That's the most obvious question. And he could understand that the closer someone got, the less there was. So it made sense that you were sort of nothing, a kind of strange, mysterious nothingness at center, which the mystics talk about. But again, that was still sort of an idea. And then he was reading a book, and uh, he saw in this book a drawing by Ernst Mark, who was an Austrian physicist and relativist. And it was a drawing of himself from his own point of view. So if you were to draw yourself from your own point of view, you'd draw a headless body because you can't see your head. He drew his nose, which went from the ceiling to the floor, and his arm coming out to the piece of paper he was drawing on. And Douglas looked at that picture and suddenly thought, that's what I am. From my point of view, when I look down, and the listener can look down, you see your body, you might see a bit of your nose, there are sensations, but you don't see your head, you don't see your back either. And in this book, the question was, what are you when you put aside what everyone says you are from outside? What are you from the inside? So Douglas realized that he'd found what he was looking for. It's a little experiment to make this clear that the listener can do, if you would, Later on, Douglas developed these experiments in the late 60s and 70s, but it's relevant now because it was what he had discovered at the time. So you have to be a bit childlike to do this, a bit simple. But if the listener will just take his or her finger and point at something in front, this is an experiment, and just notice whatever you're pointing at is a thing.
0: At the moment, I'm looking at a file on my desk and I'm pointing at it and Hmm. I see a green file. So what do I do next? Nothing,
2: except just acknowledge that what you're pointing at is a thing, right? Okay. You don't have to like the thing. You don't have to know how it's made. It's just an observation. Now point at your other hand with your first finger. Now you're pointing at another thing, right?
0: Yep. A hand with five fingers.
2: Five fingers, uh, colour and shape. Now turn your finger around and point at where others see your face. So that's the place you're actually looking out of. Now, do you see a thing there?
0: No. No, I see nothing. Exactly. If I really squint, I can sort of see a double impression of my nose. But as you say, it's like a floating nose.
2: Yes. And the point is, what is nearer to you than the floating nose?
0: Well, you don't see anything. I don't know. That's the big question, isn't it?
2: Yes. So this is a nonverbal experience, and you can't really get it wrong. I mean, I have to use words. I'm going to say the place I'm pointing and looking at now is nothing. It's like space. It's empty. There's no color here, no movement, no shape, no face, you see. So I'm using words, and you might use different words. It's a nonverbal experience, you see. But it's certainly not... A head (laughs) here.
0: And it is a very different experience, because I actually did this experiment before we started, and I sort of imagined that if there was nothing there, I didn't have a head. Like Douglas, I'm headless. And I sort of went for a walk around the block with the dog, sort of looking at the world... Not from my eyes. <laughs> yes. But without a head. Yes. I sort of imagined that I was walking around with the dog without a head. And it was quite a surreal kind of experience. Suddenly, everything became a little bit more extraordinary around. I was sort of more aware of what I was looking at. And it was sort of quite a nice place to be. I mean, I couldn't hold it for more than about, oh, two blocks. But it was a very interesting experiment, just to imagine for a moment that I didn't have a head. Yes. And how did this affect you when you were 17?
2: Well, what it meant to me was that I discovered my true nature, which is this open space full of everything. Because here I don't see a head, but then of course you see your finger and the rest of the world and and everything going on in this space.
0: An open space full of everything. Can you just unpack that for me a bit more? Yes. If I look
2: at someone, then I see their face, but I don't see mine. And in language, I would call this face to no face. Instead of my face, I have that person. Now this is not really primarily for thinking about the listener would need to just observe when they're with someone else, this asymmetrical setup. I'll put it very briefly in terms of personal development. Uh, Douglas, when he saw this, he then wrote a big book. He felt he'd found something important and he had to work out what it meant. In a way, the rest of his life was spent sharing the experience and communicating some of its meaning. And one of the ways of thinking about it is the spatial. What I am changes with the range of the observer. So at this range, uh, I'm a person, but come closer and I'm less, go further away. But at center, I'm no thing. This is the subjective experience. If I look in a mirror, I can see my face out there at that range, like I can actually now see it on the computer screen. That is what I look like. Now, a mirror shows me what I look like but I am quite different here at zero. Now, when I was a baby, I was headless. I had no idea of what I looked like, no language yet. Looked at my mum, you know, I wouldn't think, oh, I'm here, I wonder what I look like. You know, you're just wide open. And we all recognize that when we're with babies, we don't have to worry worry about what we look like, you know.
0: (laughs) Thank goodness.
2: So as a baby, you're built open. But from day one, everyone around you, your parents and siblings and so on, starts reflecting back to you what you look like through language and gesture and the mirror. And they say, although you can't see yourself, we can see you and this is what you are. Growing up is really the process of becoming aware of what you look like and identifying with that. In other words, imagining that head in the mirror on your shoulders where you can't see it, and acting as if you're behind it. That's identification. So as a child, you're learning to do that, but you haven't got in the box yet very firmly, so it's as easy to be a lion as it is to be a little boy or girl. Mm -hmm. But by the time you are an adult, you've understood that you're not a lion or a train. You're a little boy or girl. You're a boy or a girl. You're a man or a woman. And so in other words, you're sort of outside yourself, looking back at yourself through the eyes of others and taking on board that self and taking responsibility for it. Uh, So growing up is finding out who you are in society and acting as if you're that. Now, that is fantastic. That's absolutely vital. But then we stop there. So the first stage is the baby, the second, the child, the third, the adult. But I would say, following on from Douglas's insights, really there's a fourth stage, which is what I call the seer or the headless seer, which is noticing now the difference between what I am for you through your eyes, you see, which is Richard. My voice is coming out of my mouth for you. I am Richard. And what I am for myself, which is this headless space and my voice coming out of nowhere. <laughs>
0: Out of awareness, you see. And in my world, this fits very much with what happens in the middle of your life, where you actually begin to say, hang on, in the first part of my life, I actually did what everybody else thought was right. You know, I got married, I had a job, I paid my taxes. But... And we're back to my questions. Who am I and what's the meaning of life? And I'm going to define myself rather than actually take on other people's definitions. And in your language, that's actually beginning to see for myself.
2: Exactly. Looking for yourself. Growing up is taking on board what everyone else tells you that you are, which actually is is fantastic because it's empathy. Mm-hmm. It is taking up others' view of you and accepting that. But If you then have got that going, and then you start asking deeper questions, really, you're not asking, Well, can you tell me what I am? You're saying, Well, what I'm saying is, let me now return to my own point of view and look for myself what I am and take, and that is looking and not thinking.
0: You're a twin, aren't you? Yes. That's a different way of entering the world, because most of us enter the world alone, but the two of you came together. Do you think that made you more open to a different way of looking at the world? I'm sure it had a profound
2: effect, but I don't think it changes the basic step you have to make, which is to look for yourself.
0: But I think maybe, in a sense, you have to actually ask that question much earlier than everybody else, because there's two of you. You have a the twins kind of experience, and then there's an individual experience as well, which is an extra layer of this that most of us don't actually have to, to think about.
2: I think the thing that probably made a difference is that I had someone close to me Because he came to this workshop the same time I did, and he saw his headlessness and understood what it might mean. So after that, there was someone close to me that I could talk to about it and could explore what it meant. And that was really important. Now, one of the other important things that happened was that Douglas, who lived in Suffolk, always said to anyone in a workshop, if this is meaningful to you, come and visit. As a friend, not as a client, you know, there was no exchange of money. So I went. And I then went to university fairly near him. So actually, my time at university in the early seventies was really spent about exploring the meaning of this, rather than what I was studying. This was much more, and more important to me. And at his house, there was almost always visitors. He had a second house; he'd designed and built a second house just nearby. And you'd go to weekend, and there'd be fifteen people there. And so what that meant was that from that age, really, I grew up in a mini community where this experience was normal. And that meant that I could just be understood and talk to others. And the whole thing was, you can't half get your no head. You can't half see it. There's no hierarchy here. There is difference in terms of how we understand and respond to it. But the experience itself is just nothing really. So that, as well as being a twin, just as important, if not more important, was the fact that I was part of a community. In fact, now I'm part of a huge community of friends through Zoom and through traveling and through Douglas, of friends who are aware of their true nature in this way and who are valuing it and who recognize that everyone's got it, but everyone expresses it differently. So it's a very rich exchange, non-hierarchical,
0: Once you get this idea that you are nothing, that you're headless, how does that change the way that you look at the world? I think
2: it changes it in so many ways and continues to change it. For example, with relationships. In terms of the developmental thing, then when you're a baby, you're, you're unaware of yourself, you're just wide open. And the middle stage is when I am seeing myself from outside, so I'm face to face. So I'm separate, thing to thing. I'm distant from you and from from everyone. Okay, great, that's individuation. But then when you add on to that, when I add on to it, for myself, I'm face to no face. This means that when I'm with others... I am them, I would say. I I have their face instead of mine. And this is a profound reconnection, if you like.
0: Let's just redo that again, because that sounds important. When you're with somebody, you take on their face. Can you just explain that to me again? And voice and everything. So
2: when I am not aware of this, then I say, well, this is my voice, and that's your voice,
0: and you're over
2: there in in Germany, I think, and I'm here in England. And so there's that distance between us and I'm me and you're you. Okay, I've got that. But then when I become aware of this nothingness that I am, which you could call silence or awareness, then I'm aware that my voice now and your voice are in my awareness, in this silence. So from that point of view, I could say, well, both voices are mine. There's no distance between me and your voice or me and Rich's voice. And so that is in terms of sound. You see, I think what happens is that when you grow up, the language that you develop from society is based on I and you. Yep. Subject and object. So you operate with that structure. And that's all that you know, because we tend to experience what language lets us experience. Now, when you introduce this new experience of being face-to-no-face, it needs another language. For example, face to no face or looking out of my single eye or headless or being still in the room and the world flows through me when I walk. And it will keep developing a new language to articulate this point of view. So, for example, I would say, as well as saying I am not you, I would now say I am you. I am space for you. I am room for you. You are in me.
0: So I am you, and you are me, and then that suggests that we're all one. Am I following this correctly?
2: Yes, but there's a paradox here. We are one. The we is as important as the one. So I would say when you're a baby, you're not aware of two, you're just one. When you're an adult, you're aware of Two and not one. <laughs> and now in this next wonderful stage, you have both, where it's a mystery. There's only one consciousness. How many consciousnesses do you actually experience, Andrew?
0: I'm now making a strange face because this is a question. <laughs> this is a question I'm struggling with. So ask me it again. How many
2: consciousnesses do you actually experience?
0: Mm, That's a really difficult one to answer, because as a therapist, I sort of open myself up and become very aware. And I suppose in this language, they could almost enter me, and I become a conduit and to try and see the world from their perspective. So I sort of have my consciousness and I have their consciousness. Yes, yes. No, I understand that. That's empathy, you see.
2: I'm not asking for a kind of definitive answer here, Uh, just a reflection, really. But you don't directly experience my thoughts, for example. No,
0: no. No. But I can pick up body language and various other things, and I could know you fairly well, and I could sort of have some kind of sense, but it's not a logical sense that there's some kind of connection there that is sort of more than empathy, I feel. For me, if we drill down... I think there's something more than empathy. And this is one of the reasons why I'm interested in your headless way, because I sort of feel it might be helpful in my journey that there is something underneath the empathy.
2: Well, let me perhaps put it in terms of being a therapist then. So when I was a therapist, I didn't talk about headlessness because people might come for bereavement or whatever, and it's the answer to a question they're not asking, right? You know, it would be a bit like saying, I think the best thing for now is we get down on our knees and pray. You know, it'd be imposing my thing. It's ridiculous. But what I did and what I'm hopefully doing now is to be headless, which is just being open. It is undogmatic. It is just being attentive to being, in my language, space for the situation as it's unfolding.
0: I just thought you put it very nicely in your book, you are the spot where we all come together.
2: Yes, that's right. So when I'm with you, hopefully, and and when I'm with a client, I am the spot where we come together. You know, it is an open, receptive thing. Now, When I see that I am this nothingness, aware nothingness, containing the situation, if I can put it like that, then I must accept that you're in the same basic condition. And I accept that my view out from this headless nothingness is different from yours. There's the difference. But the fact that I am sort of living this means that I am... In the nothingness, there's no difference. So I'm sort of placing myself at your center. Okay. And empathy is developing the capacity to recognize what you're feeling and thinking in the same nothingness, you see. And when you're being aware of this silence here, it sort of clears the deck so that you can be aware of what's going on. You know, rather than being sort of enclosed and thinking about you, which sort of blocks out the other person... Being headless is being open to the other. So that enables you to be more attentive and empathic, if you like, to the other person.
0: And so how does being headless impact you on a sort of a daily basis?
2: I think it is being aware of my true nature here, where we were pointing, looking out of this single opening. When I'm, for example, walking or driving, I'm seeing that from my point of view, I'm still in the scenery moves through me. Now, why I mention that is that it is becoming aware of your center, which isn't a point, which is stable, it's reliable. It's not a thing, but it's real. It's what you are. So I think that in a very basic way, you have a, an anchor, a kind of ground in all the changing things that are going on uh, from which you're operating and which you can always access
0: And how does this change the other big questions like life and death and these other big existential questions? Before I give
2: my response to that, let me say that I love the fact that you can't pin any of this down and it is a mystery. And that is so important to me that I'm meeting you for the first time. And this conversation is arising, I would say, in awareness, you see. And it's not happened before. And that is a wonderful, thrilling, creative thing. Now, I would say that when I look at a clock, then I see the second hand going round and the minute hand going round and so on. You could say that time and change go together. The clock registers time. And uh, as you watch the the hand moving or the seasons changing, there's change, time, birth and death, the beginning and ending of things. But when I turn my attention around to the place I'm looking out of, there's nothing here changing. Not only no face here, but no movement. And so I would say that this space is timeless. Another way of putting it is that I'm looking into time from the timeless. Now, this is a fantastic thing, really, is you're living into the world of birth and death and time and loss and all of those things from this which never changes, which you can never lose. You've got both, but it is an enormous comfort and strength to find this place at your very center that is always there and the same for everyone. And you, you can't get it more or less. You know, it's very equalizing. To to have this in the midst of the things that you can't control, life and death. I still feel grief and loss and worry, but there's one quite interesting little experiment. If you hold your arm out and make your hand into a fist, the listener can try this. Yep, yeah, I'm trying it. And visually, you look, just to get the perspective, visually you look down your arm and your hand is in a fist there at the far end, but at the near end it disappears about your shoulder into nothing, you see. So that's the nothing and the something. Now, if you make your hand into a fist,
0: you get tension. Now, does the space at the near end of your hand get tense? The bit I can't see, or yes. the bit yeah, the, the bit I, I can't I, see, no, it doesn't get tense. No, no exactly. You see, you see, you've got to play with the language because you... So you can relax
2: your hands. So in other words, just as it's face to no face, it's stress to no stress. And Douglas Harding wrote a book called Head Off Stress, and that was one of the main things. It's asymmetrical. So just as is, my voice happening in the silence and the face there in the no face, so it's stress and anxiety and fear to no stress, anxiety, fear. It doesn't make the stress go away, but it places it. It's kind of peripheral, if you like. Now, it's not avoidance. It's actually you become more aware in a way. But at the same time, you have access to this stress free zone and this problem free zone. And really, this plays into, uh, I mean, the ideas of Jung, really. If you really open up to the true self, you recognize your true self underneath your personal self somewhere is immensely wise. But you need to sort of open to it and request help. And being aware of this is really uh, becoming aware of a fantastic resource.
0: Yes, and because I'm currently in uh, Jungian therapy, this whole idea that we have an ego that is the sort of the part of us that says, you know, I want to have Richard on my programme, and then we have a self, which is a deeper version. Some people call it a spirit or a soul, And there is a difference between what our ego wants and what our unconscious wants. What you're saying, and this is also, I think, if I'm understanding correctly, what Jung is saying, is that our unconscious is part of something greater called the collective unconscious. And the sort of almost something divine in all of that. Is this where you're going as well?
2: Yes. And the thing that Douglas Harding did was he tied the physical to the spiritual or the psychological. So in other words, when you tell me I'm just Richard, I relate to Richard. That's my personal self. But you step back and you see my family and I relate to that. So that's my family self, right? That's a bit more deeper, kind of wider. And you step back and eventually see the race you know, and I identify with that sometimes at some level. I not thats my racial unconscious, right? Now, what am I really? What's the deepest self? Well, you can't tell me because you can't get here. But I can—I'm here. It's so simple, you see. And this is no longer theory. I turn my attention around. I point back at the place I'm looking at, and this is no thing, which is self-evidently empty but full of the view and aware, and that's my true self. And this is no longer a theory. This is direct experience.
0: So there's more experiments in the book, seeing who you really are. And in a moment, we're actually going to look at a real issue that somebody has written in that we can approach both from a day-to-day sort of way. And let's see what would happen if we look at it from a headless way as well. And we'll do that in just a moment. The Meaningful Life
1: with Andrew G. Marshall Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook and visit our website andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits.
0: Now, one of the advantages of becoming a supporter and joining our supporters club is that you can write letters to us for us to discuss. And I have just such a letter that I'm talking to Richard Lang about, and we're talking about the headless way as well. Here is the letter. My wife left me two and a half years ago. We were together ten years, married for five. A few months after we separated, she filed for divorce and it was finalised fairly quickly. In the interim, I tried in vain to save our marriage. I genuinely tried to take a hard look at myself and work on myself and see all the reasons our marriage broke down, but she would have none of it. She walked out and never came back. She said she had a lot of problems. She did, with herself and wanted to work on herself. In time, I rebuilt my life and met this amazing girl, Very beautiful, sexy, of course, with her own problems, as everyone does. So I'm happy with her in different ways than I was with my wife. My wife was partly in the picture, catching up every now and then. We don't have kids. And when she found out about my relationship, boom, she now wants to work on things. She says we should go to counselling. She loves me. We should try to figure it out, etc, etc. I am torn. I'm very, very attracted to my girlfriend. We've been together about a year now. And although things have been rocky due to COVID, etc., they have still been great. Our sex life is awesome in ways it never was with my wife. This could have been due to my own lack of experience. Anyway, I told my ex-wife to wait while I figure this out, and she made some advances, got disappointed, and cut contact for now. I told her I will reach out if and when I'm ready to take things forward. Currently still with my girlfriend, I'm very conflicted about what to do. I think I need to work on myself and know myself better. Got any ideas for a tormented soul? My gosh, I think he knew you were coming on this podcast. No. I think a tormented soul is a very good way of putting it. I mean, how do you react to this letter?
2: Well, I would react, I suppose, with first attention and uh, taking in what he is saying and being with him and uh, connecting. I think we're all tormented souls, actually. Join the club. Yeah, really. And I would not introduce headlessness, as I Mm -hmm. said at the beginning. That's my own formulation. I would be with the person. I think that where headlessness would influence me is, first of all, being open, not rolling in with all the answers, (laughs) you know. And secondly, because I have this feeling that he is headless where he is, though he may not put it in those terms, it's the most familiar thing, your true nature, that would send me in the direction, really, of trusting him, to come up with what he needs. Now, I can be there to walk alongside him and reflect with him and even give advice, I suppose. But the main thing for me is that the answer will come from within him or from his own life somewhere, just as it does for me, you see, if I don't know what to do. A, you do everything you can, practically. But then, when you've run out of ideas, you wait. I say you see who you are and wait. You be the emptiness and trust it to come up with what you need. Now, that can be said in Jungian terms, I'm sure, in
0: another way. So, see who you are and wait. Now, I think that is really profound, because actually, we spend quite a lot of time, and I did edit the letter, on the girlfriend, on the wife... And it's all looking out, to use your phrase, and he's not actually seeing not just who he is, but what he needs, because it feels like he's actually been very conscious of those other people and hasn't asked in depth, who am I? What do I need in this world? And I think you're right, that's where the answer is. When you're spending all your time comparing A and B, do I want When they come trundling down when you're on a plane and they say, would you like the chicken or the fish? That's all he's seeing the chicken or the fish. There are other options, if you know what I mean. Am I sounding terrible?
2: No, no, that's that's good. And and I think that what the headless way, if I can interpret it in this way, because it's really a nonverbal experience, what I might say is that there can be a value in not knowing. You don't know the answer at the moment, all right? You don't, I mean, how on earth are you going to sort that one out? So admit you don't know, but headless way, I say that that knowing can be a really positive thing, that you wait in the not knowing because you're exploring, trusting that that not knowing, your true nature, will come up with what you need. It's obviously not coming up with what he needs, what he thinks he needs right now. It's coming up with not knowing. So what is there to do but be with that, you see?
0: And what I would say is I think it's important to keep the other people informed about your confusion because it's very difficult for you to stay in the not-knowing if you're performing knowing with your girlfriend. Very good. That's really difficult to be in the not-knowing and the not-judging. That's a lovely space, not-judging. And telling your wife that you're in this space as well. Now, it seems like she can't cope with that space, so at the moment there's less contact. But if she does come back, being able to share that the not-knowing is not not thinking about it, not discovering about it, because people think if you don't know, you're doing nothing, you're shutting yourself off. But actually, this is not. Actually, being in the not knowing is a really quite creative kind of space.
2: Well, well put. And I think the practical side of it, the communication, is very wise,
0: yes. I hope that has been helpful. I think you're in the right job. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Thank you, <Richard. laughs> but, But um, I'm on a path, and this path is to understand these big questions. What I really like about you is that you are so open. You know, it's a case of do the experiments, see for yourself, and you have to sort of, I think, in the bigger sense, we have to stay in that not knowing, because that is quite a creative place. And actually, I've played with these experiments and I'm sort of working through them very slowly because... It's not really something you, like most books, you start at the beginning and work through. You've sort of got to let it settle Mm. for a little bit. So from time to time, I practice that having no head, you know, I don't have a head, I'm just looking at the world. Mm. And that's quite a delicious kind of place to be. And that sort of sense of getting the different perspective. So I'm not quite so caught up in just that sense of, you know, Mm. I'm a man, I'm 61, I live in Berlin, sort of kind of stuff. It's quite an interesting place to to play with those ideas that actually it might be more complex than that. And more simple. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're really playing with my mind now. <laughs>
2: Well, I think that's a very good approach. Uh, and also, if anyone is interested, we have regular free Zoom meetings. I say that because it can be helpful to hang out with others and see how they're responding to this. It's infectious and helpful. Yeah.
0: So I will be putting the details of seeing who you really are and the books that Douglas has written in the show notes. It might also be interesting if this is sort of floating your boat. to listen to a, another podcast with Martina Schneider that I've done. And she's interested in Vedanta, which is a Hindu path, which is also experimenting with this idea that we're all one as well. So you might find that podcast interesting. All the details will be in the show notes. So Richard, you are my witness on what makes life meaningful. So I now have to ask you to answer that question. What makes your life meaningful?
2: I think different things. Today, it might be this meeting at the moment. The meaning is being presented. I've got other projects on. So that is very meaningful for me to have friends with whom I can share this experience of who we really are. And I, I suppose to back right up what makes life meaningful is being in touch with my true nature. And more and more, if I can little by little handing over to it in a way and trusting and living from it this is very exciting and not
0: easy trusting and living from the mystery is that what you're saying from my
2: true nature yes being conscious of it is is the heart of it you know like now being aware my voice is happening in the silence and this whole conversation is arising within the the one as i would put it and just attempting to be conscious of that more and more, if you like, and uh, and that is a kind of trust.
0: And the, the one will provide... Well, that
2: is, you see, the, the great possibility, and I, I believe that's absolutely true. Now, the small print. Is the,
0: <laughs> is that, I love that idea. The small print.
2: The small print is that it doesn't give you what you want; it gives you what you need. Right? <laughs> yes. So that's now that's a very creative edge, but it's a it can be rather challenging. Yes, but I'm I'm deeply convinced of that. Although I I do often think that it's making a mistake. <laughs> but that's my hubris. Surely, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what you oh. really
0: should be giving me now? <laughs> yeah, I mean, why can't the one be a vending machine where you put your money in and out pops what you asked for. I <laughs> <They> know exactly. <laughs> yes, but sometimes you know they when you you press for the the chocolate with nuts and you get the chocolate with raisins. It might actually be even better, mightn't it? Well, that's the
2: thing, you see. And of course, it's like Kierkegaard said: uh, life is lived forwards and understood backwards. It, it's only late. Ah, uh-huh, that's why. Hopefully. So I think this is a great adventure, is to let go, really, and see what is happening rather than what you think should be happening. What you think should be happening is all part of it, too. That's important.
0: Well, this, unfortunately, is where the conversation ends. But if you join our supporters club, you get the chance to hear the bonus material. And the bonus material, we're going to talk about what we've both learned from this experience of meeting together today. And I'm also going to find out the three things that Douglas knows is true deep down. Richard. Richard. I'm terribly sorry, (laughs) but then you and (laughs) I'm not not what I look like. (laughs) Yes,
2: hang on a minute.
0: Who who you say you are? (laughs) Oh yes, that's the theory. The practice (laughs) is—you're still Richard. Well, you'll find out what Richard thinks is really true. Richard, thank you very much. You're welcome. For being my guest today on The You're Meaningful You're welcome, life. George.
1: <laughs> You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts Healy, sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza, and I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.